Friends, welcome to the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. My name is Tim Fulton. I'm the founder, chief evangelist for Small Business Matters. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Taylor Fulton, the director of marketing for Small Business Matters. Taylor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be here. Yep. Uh, we're, we're still a little bit sheltered in. We are. Hard to believe November is right around the corner. Yeah, the year's, year's really been going fast. So, Taylor, I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today for the Small Business Matters podcast. Our, our guest is Neil Campbell. Neil is the executive director of the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. This is a, a nonprofit organization here in Georgia that's dedicated to increasing the impact of recovery in our communities through education, advocacy, training, and peer recovery support services. Neil is a passionate advocate using her own uh, lived recovery experience to reach others who are struggling. Uh, she is, uh, her current emphasis is to really twofold, to influence public policy through a recovery positive legislative agenda. That means she spends a lot of time at the Capitol here in Atlanta. <laughs> and also she spends a, a good amount of time promoting recovery-oriented systems of care to increase the peer recovery workforce which means a lot to our audience, which are you know, small business owners. So, Neil, welcome to the Small Business Matters podcast. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Taylor. Really happy to be here. So we always start off with the same question for each of our guests, and that is, what is it that you do and your agency does that matters to small business? Yeah, so first of all, I think on a global level, this agency, the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, has the vision of a world where the social norms that surround addiction and substance misuse are changed. There's just so much stigma and discrimination that happens to individuals and families that experience substance use disorders. And we're a group of people who are in recovery, and we speak up and we speak out about our own recovery so that everybody knows it's possible. So I know it's a huge goal and a huge vision, but it really is about how do we when people think of someone who is struggling with a substance use disorder, how do we change what they think about that to not be the person possibly living under a bridge or the person who just keeps making bad choices, but to someone who has the potential for recovery? And then on a more local level, um, I think that what matters to small businesses a lot, I know it does to mine, is human capital. And we think a lot about how to recruit, how to hire, how to retain staff. And there's so many staff that are struggling with substance use disorders, with mental illness, and they might be afraid to bring that up to a supervisor or someone that they work with. And then the people who are in charge may not know how to deal with that either. And so we work a lot with people on a local level and communities and businesses to provide peer support services to say, hey, we've, we've uh, worked our way out of this. You can too. And then we also have a way to help people have honest and, uh, if you will, compassionate conversations with individuals who are struggling or may have family members that are struggling. Excellent. Well, you touched on a number of topics there, and so I'll just dive <laughs> right in. Um, I love your, your mission statement and kind of the first point you made about uh, really having a, a global objective for your, your organization. I'm curious, how do you measure something like that that is, is so big that you're constantly striving for? Yeah, that's, it's, it's tough in a way, but 
So when I introduce myself to groups of people that are outside of, let's say, a 12-step or unusual support meeting, I introduce myself as, my name is Neil, and I'm a woman in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is that it's been 30 years since I've had my last drink or illegal drug. And that's a that's kind of a catchphrase that those of us who are in recovery use to talk about our experience. And there are tens of thousands of people using that catchphrase now in this country. So that's one of the ways to measure the language is starting to get different. You know, you don't hear people, you know, we, we use person first language. So we prefer instead of saying that person's an addict, a junkie, we say that's a person who's seeking recovery, right? That you uh, don't have to hit bottom. If the elevator gets off at every floor. So we have, we're trying to change the language because we believe that language creates culture and that culture influences language as well. And so it, it, I think that's one way to measure it is, are we becoming uh, a community and a family that supports recovery? And there's ways to tell that. Um, are we firing people who have who come to us with a substance use disorder? Are we sending them to a, an EAP? I mean, I think there's just a lot of ways we can measure whether we're treating this thing called addiction in appropriate ways. So, Neil, I'd like for our listeners to understand, how did you get to this point in your career? How did you get to become the executive director of, of the uh, Georgia Council on Substance Abuse? A little bit about your your, your history. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I worked for state and county government for 26 years. I started out my career in law enforcement in Key West, Florida in mm. 1982, Uh, So I'm old, that's how I got to this place, but I worked in various uh, capacities in criminal justice, corrections, and law enforcement for for 26 years, and I kept seeing this connection between criminal justice and addiction, right? And then with my own lived experience of, you know, when when you, I worked around a lot of alcohol, I have family history of a lot of alcohol use and misuse. And so there was just this huge connection that I thought I felt personally as well as just seeing it. You know, if you look at behind so many crimes and so many people that we lock up, it it starts with either substance use or buying and selling drugs to either use as your own or to help others get engaged in those kind of bad activities. So I just, you know, after working... um, so, so I had a thousand employees at one at one point when I worked here in Atlanta. I was the administrator, regional administrator for juvenile justice, and I ran five detention centers, uh, five, uh, ten court service offices. I had just this huge staff, and I left that job to become the first state director of addictive diseases for the state of Georgia. And I did that for three years, and really saw that I didn't. I didn't feel like they were doing it right. I don't know how else to say that other than I, you know, I'd sit in a lot of important meetings and people would say, well, those people are expensive and those people don't want to get better. And I kept thinking they're talking about me. So I wanted to become an advocate to start pushing the system in a direction that says these are human beings and what can we do to support folks who want, who, who will get better if we give them the right services and supports. So it's been a long road and I've been here 12 years. It was uh, October 1st of 2008 that I I got this job as executive director. Um, And it's just blasted out. It's gone wild. (laughs) Yes. I'll say we've gotten, um, I was the only staff when we started, I had a part-time staff here and, um, Eventually, right now, today, we have 32 full-time staff and two part-time staff. 
Wow. So that's in fantastic. 12 years, we've really grown. Our revenue has increased and, you know, we just really um, keep doing the work. And Neil, for our listeners, describe uh, how the agency is funded. Sure. So we get our funding from government contracts, from foundation, foundation grants, um, directed giving. You know, we, we do fundraisers, um, but most of our, our work right now is funded by federal and state grants. Yeah, you know, we talked to a lot of business owners or executives um, on this podcast, and the term leader comes up a lot, and it means different things to different people. So I'm curious in your organization what the role of a leader looks like. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think a great leader for this business in the human services business is about being a visionary. And I think in a nonprofit world, which we are, we've always got to sort of look at the horizon. Where is this going and where – so it's always that that tension between what's existing now that we can fund, but where do we want to go? So trying to push in, you know, if you can see my hands, you see that I'm adjusting them to, you got, it's a push and a pull constantly because we want to be a leader and, and have the vision to say, we want to change the social norms surrounding addiction, full stop. But how do you get there? How do you keep the lights on? How do you keep the staff uh, you know, rowing in the right direction. And, it, you know, it, so it can be tricky. So I think seeing beyond, beyond the horizon is really good, but you also have to chop wood and carry water. You know, every day mm-hmm. have to, we have to think about, you know, are we making payroll? Do we have enough? Are we making sure our staff, are we offering good benefits? Are we keeping good staff? And, and I, I got to say one thing, I think I'm blessed with one of my strengths is hiring good people and I've got some, I mean, the folks, the young folks I have working here now are just such hot shots. I know that when I get ready to, to retire, which is not too far, hopefully down the road, that we've got some leadership here because I believe in building leadership. I put a lot of investment in human capital. We train a lot. Um, when someone says they want to come work for us. I always ask them, what do you want to do? And, and typically they'll say anything you want me to do. And I say wrong answer. <laughs> what do you want to do? What do you love? What are you passionate about? What do you care about? Because I'm not going to fight with grown folks to get out of bed in the morning. You got to run out of bed and want to do this work because it's not easy. So I think, you know, having that enthusiasm, having uh, the vision and, and being able just to keep keep it between the lines is really, really about leadership in, in this organization. Neil, I'm curious as a follow-up to Taylor's question. I, I believe you're the first nonprofit leader that we've had on, on the Small Business Matter podcast. And I think maybe there's a, a mindset in, in the corporate world that someone leading a nonprofit, it's it's not the same as, as running a for-profit company. What are your thoughts on that? And, and if there is a difference, what is the difference between running a for-profit versus a nonprofit? Or maybe how is it similar? I think, uh, yeah, that's a boy, That's a long conversation. So I, I want to talk about a board. I'm answerable as the leader, as the executive director, or if I was a CEO, I could be a CEO, but my, my title is executive director, and I'm answerable to a board. And on my board are corporate people. <laughs> I have the former CFO of Delta Airlines is on our board. Uh, the former director of Accenture here in Atlanta is on our board. So we have some corporate influence. And so, you know, I... I Coming from, I was in state government, so I come to nonprofit world. I really didn't know, but I learned a lot from these corporate 
fellas. We had uh, Warren Job, who has since passed away. He was the president of Georgia Power. He was on our board as well. So I learned so much from these men when I first got here about, you know, we, well, we don't call it a profit. We call it an increase in net assets, right? But it's still the same. You still have to worry about that. Like what's, you know, they would ask me all the time, what's your margin? I'm like, well, in government contracts, you don't have a margin. You have indirect costs. <laughs> you have an admin cost. So some of the languaging is different, but I really think the skill set it takes and the uh, attention to the, the, you know, resources, developing resources constantly, uh, you know, there's competition in this market as well. Um, I, I think some of that is the same. We, you know, it is having a board though is, you know, that you are, that is my boss is, is different. And, um, you know, I never have had that before. And yes, I get to, you know, influence who is on my board, but I also have people who just are really passionate about this work. And so um, I think nonprofit world can board development and board, uh, you know, getting people on our board who really are good at business. I think there's a myth that people maybe in nonprofit world are not good at business, and that's just not the case. That would certainly my learning curve has been all about how do we, how are we good stewards of the public funding that we get. But also, how do we just keep it going? It's constant. It's constant competition. It's constant, you know, trying to th- outthink people and to to do, you know, the next right thing. <laughs> well, it is interesting when you when you mention competition that while there may not be a host of other agencies that do exactly what you do, there's certainly no shortage of of other just nonprofits that are looking for funding that are doing great things all competing for a small bucket of cash. Yep. And it gets, you know, that cash bucket grows and expands, much like markets do. I think that, you know, you have to just really be in tune with it. And I also think one of the important things, you know, in terms of whether you're a leader in a private or nonprofit organization, it's about relationships, right? It's about, you know, my relationship with my board, um, our reputation as an organization. I think all of that, you know, we're all on, everybody's on social media, nonprofits and for-profits, you know, we all have to have, we have to kind of be flashy in a certain way to, to catch attention because people are just so distracted and distractible these days, including myself. So I think there's some similarities, but it's a, um, I never thought I'd be running a nonprofit. It was something I've always wanted to do public service and government work. And, but I feel like with the growth that we've had and the way that our revenue has increased every year and I have to do budget forecasts and I have to, you know, all of that stuff is part of what we do as not in nonprofit world. Changing gears here for a second. When you work with small businesses or, or cor- corporate folks and you're talking about substance abuse, what are some of the major themes or questions that typically come up? Yeah, that's a great question too. We um, often... What we do, we have a really great training on teaching people how to have compassionate conversations about, or just conversations about alcohol and drug abuse, because folks don't know how, can I ask people this? Can I mention that? I mean, folks don't, there's such, again, the stigma, but also the tradition of anonymity that comes with people with substance use disorders. A lot of folks go to 12-step or mutual help groups to get better, but a lot of people don't. But we think that there's something magical that happens in these 12-step rooms or we we don't know how people get better or is this a behavior? Is it a moral weakness? Is it? A, I think there's just so much that people don't know. So we teach 
that addiction is a preventable, treatable, chronic health condition, and people get better. Because what you tend to see is what we tell the corporate world a lot is that you don't see the news cameras out at Hartsfield-Jackson Airport filming the safe landings. They only film the wrecks. <laughs> that's when you see them out there. And that's how it is with us. Those of us who have a substance use disorder that are a total mess, we get a lot of attention. Think of all the, the you know, the, um, the Hollywood types that get into trouble with addiction or, or die of an overdose. You hear about that. You don't hear about the folks, those of us like me, who struggled but got better. So what we try to tell people is there's hope that it can, you know, turnover can cost a lot and absenteeism costs businesses a lot. And so how do you have conversations with your employees that can, you know, help them stay well? Or if they go to treatment and come back, how do you have that conversation where you welcome them back and say, let's, you know, how can I support you? I mean, just that question, how can I support you? Mm-hmm. Um, is, is really, really important. And then I don't think that we can get out of this conversation without mentioning that there are a lot of families who have lost loved ones. And how do we have that? How do we even have that conversation? If you know someone in your in your company who's lost a daughter or a son to an overdose, or, you know, I had one mother tell me that uh, she started a group called Nobody Baked Me a Casserole. She said, if my son died of, um, you know, of cancer, I would have had it. All my neighbors would have brought me casseroles mm. and taken care of me, but he died of addiction and nobody said a thing because of that shame. So how do you, how do we reduce that stigma? And I think if we do that, you're going to see people not afraid to ask for help. You're going to see more people getting better. I think it's good for business. I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to cut down on overtime and on, on times that people are gone on sick leave, all of that thing. When people are better, you know, happy workforce is a good workforce. Absolutely. So Neil, I want to pick up on something that, that you alluded to. So let's I'm a small business owner and I'm saying, well, that that happens to other small businesses. You know, that that would never happen in, in my my business with my people. What are some of the how does it impact small business? Where would it show up in a small business? If I'm looking at a financial statement, where would it impact my small business if I did have employees that that were uh, were victims or, or were experiencing abuse? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, absenteeism. I think a lot of sick leave. I think, um, you know, uh, chronic, like you're constantly having uh, behavioral issues if you suspect something's going on. You know, do you have, you know, is it something that you would refer? Like we're not asking people in small businesses to be counselors, but certainly they can refer to either an EAP or have a, you know, we'd love to give out referral cards to all small businesses to say, hey, if you think someone is struggling or if you want to have a conversation with someone, let us help you with that because we, we do. We can help help you bring that up because sometimes it's hard. You don't know what you can say to someone. So I think absentee rates, I think turnover, I think, um, you know, all of those things are higher rates for your benefits, for your health insurance. You're going to see that because people, you know, there's a huge connection between physical illness and addiction. You know, those of us who struggle, you know, not only do we, if we had a substance use disorder, we tend to die about 22 years earlier than someone who doesn't have a mm-hmm. diagnosis, but we also have chronic health issues a lot of times. So I think you'll see it showing up in those ways as well. Well, thank you. And and again, I want to pick up on something that you said. So let's say I, I'm that small business owner and now I've recognized something is going on with one of my employees and, and I want to address it. I need to address it. And I don't have the slightest clue about what to say. 
How, how does that conversation start? Yeah. Hey, I care about you. It seems like something's going on. Can we have a conversation about this? Are you okay? You know, that's what was the turnaround for me, Tim. When someone said to me, are you okay? And I was not okay. I was, uh, you know, I was having blackouts, you know, but to say, you know, to have a corporate policy or a small business policy that says, if you're struggling, we want to help as opposed to, you know, you want a safe and drug-free workplace, but you also want to be able to have some honest conversations if someone's struggling as well. So, I, you know, I get that. You don't want people coming to work, bringing in drugs. I mean, I'm sure most people have the safe and drug-free workplace, but do they have a place that says we're recovery-friendly? You know, if you have people who are willing to speak out in your in your small business that's in recovery, have them just do a little lunch and learn and say, hey, you know, I got better. This is you know, tell their stories. I think that can be really important too. To not make it something that someone is ashamed of. I think shame is what kills people. It's what hurts people. So I think having being able to say, oh yeah, I know someone who like if nothing else, Tim, you you can say tonight, and Taylor, you too, you can say, hey, I spoke to a woman who struggled with alcoholism for years, and now she's been sober for thirty years, and she's doing great. You know, if nothing else, it's saying, hey, I do know people, and. We have a, a warm line that people can call that small businesses can refer to. They can call and there's a recovery coach that answers the phone from 8.30 in the morning until 11 at night. And not to, to tell people what to do, but just to listen. We call it radical listening. So I think we can teach people how to listen. Again, we're not trying, not everybody has to be a counselor. It's just if you can have an open mind about it and know that people can get better and not and you know, what I find, too, is a lot of times people use their own experience as a judge. Like, let's say I have someone in my family who never got better. I'm going to tend to think that nobody gets better. Mm. You know, you personalize that, and that's understandable. But to say, hey, there is a group of people. There's a bunch of people around. You know, there's 25 million people in this country who are in recovery. Did you know that? 25 million. Wow. Just to say, to be able to have a policy that says that, we believe you can be one of the 25 million that, that got better. So we're all working from home now because of COVID and I'm, I'm just curious any changes or themes that you've seen in the agency or just in life that is affecting people, given that we are a little bit more secluded, a little bit more isolated. Um, and it's been, been quite the process. Yeah. We said, it's a great question, Taylor. We always say the opposite of addiction is human connection. So when we got terrified when the governor had the stay-at-home order. It's like, oh, my goodness, how are people who go to 12-step meetings, who go to a counselor, who get their support, how are they going to get support? So we did a hard pivot, and we did uh, – luckily, we had gotten Zoom savvy before this. And, um, <laughs> we started doing Zoom all recovery meetings twice a day, and uh, just – Two nights ago, I had them, uh, my staff call me uh, at 7.30. They were so excited. They were like, we have 55 people on our Zoom call tonight. 55 calling in to get support around recovery. So we do that twice a day, 10 o'clock in the morning and 7 at night. And then we have an LGBT all recovery meeting on Thursdays at noon. And we have a Spanish-speaking meeting Tuesdays at 8.30 and 12, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can go to our website and see that. So what we did was... To answer your question, a hard pivot to virtual meetings. And what we found was that it, it's not that scary. I mean, I myself, I had never been to an, a virtual 12-step meeting until the pandemic. And I thought, man, I need, I need a meeting. And I, I went to a website, and it's called intherooms.com. And you can get a 12-step meeting 
all day long. And there's people from Europe, there's people, it's really quite interesting. So I think those of us who understand that we need that connection, we need that support because, you know, addiction, again, it's a chronic health condition, something that you get better over time. You have to have some kind of support. You know, mm-hmm. it's a sort of a we thing. So um, we did that. And we have staff who work in three rural hospitals uh, in Northeast Georgia. So we had to pull them out of the hospitals because uh, they're in the emergency departments for people who are experiencing a substance use issue. And um, so we pulled them out and they started doing their stuff over the phone, but we're back in that hospital now. And then we also have a a neonatal intensive care unit program. We have four coaches uh, in a, in two hospitals for babies who experience neonatal abstinence syndrome. And we had to pull them out for a while, but they're back too. So, you know, it's had an effect. I'm, I'm really worried about young people and, you know, high school kids who are struggling. And I just, you know, it's that that worries me a lot that how are they getting their support are they getting support um we've seen an increase of fentanyl overdose deaths to the tune of 60 percent since the pandemic started here in Mm. georgia and a three percent increase in overdoses in the emergency departments a week so three percent a week it's increasing so uh it's a scary time to be sure so we always try to tell people you know if you've got a phone you can call us where you can, there's a crisis and access line that the Department of Behavioral Health runs. You know, there's there's ways to connect. It's just not like it was before. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taylor, I wrote down what Neil said because I thought this was such a powerful statement. The opposite of addiction is human connection. Uh, that's mm-hmm. really something I think for all of us to, to think about. Neil, I want to go back to my example of the small business owner. So now, Let's say I'm I'm looking to hire someone and it has come up that this individual has had an addiction issue. What as a business owner, is there a concern there that I should have about hiring someone with that past? And then let's say I I go ahead and, and hire the individual as their boss. Is there anything I should be mindful of as their boss, someone who's now working for me who has had an addiction uh, in their past? I would treat it like you would any other health condition. You know, there's some things you can talk about and some things you can't legally, but just out of a human perspective, if someone's opening up to you and say, hey, man, I've had, I have struggled in the past, but I've been sober for two years and I'm doing great. And, you know, I think if they open that door to that conversation, we can help you have that conversation by saying, okay, well, what, how will I know if you're struggling? You know, I always ask people that question. What's it going to look like if you're struggling? Because we have people We've had people in our organization have, we don't call it a relapse, we call it a setback in their recovery, and they wanted to continue on working, and we've had to have that. It's a tough conversation. What are you willing to do to stay here? How am I, how am I going to have confidence that you can still do your job? And so we've had that, those conversations. But we have a policy that we, we, get, we have a plan with them, and you know, it's kind of like a performance plan. And I think you treat people like you do any other with any other chronic health condition that they're, you know, and just know that they can get better. I think that if we start thinking, hey, I'm not going to hire the, I mean, I'm telling you, I have 32 employees who have a substance who have had a substance disorder and it's one of the happiest workplaces I've ever been because mm. we pay attention to things like this. We pay attention to our wellness. I let staff advocate, they were, they advocated for their own. They're like, look, you give us sick days or paid time off, but 
if we are living our values, then we need to we need some wellness days. And so they they advocated for that. And so I said, you're right. And we my, the board approved it, and we gave them wellness days in addition to their paid time off because we believe that balance between work and taking care of yourself is really important. So I think if you create that culture in your small business that yes, we're going to work hard, we expect you to be here and show up and do your job, and if not how can we support you either, you know, moving on or staying here and getting well and staying well. Mm-hmm. So I think wellness, you know, couching it in wellness, like mm-hmm. do you want, I think most people, I mean, I know we do a nonprofit world. I'm sure we do in small businesses too. We want people to be happy and to have, you know, happy employees or good employees. And let's, let's do things that focus on wellness. Mm-hmm. Well, you've given our listeners a lot of really good advice and really a lot to think about as it ties into business and, and just the human element that, that we're all a part of. But I'm curious, what, what mistakes do you see both businesses and just organizations as a whole make when it comes to dealing with people and, and dealing with substance abuse? Yeah, for, for us, and, and we get so used to being around a culture of recovery that when we hear people call each other, call someone an addict or say things that are demeaning, so I think the language is really important. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's one of the biggest mistakes you can do. Because if I'm struggling with a substance use disorder and I hear you talking about junkies and addicts, and I'm not going to think very much. I'm going to think twice about disclosing any issues to you or, or, or trying to talk to you about how I need some help. Right. So I think creating that uh, an environment that supports people is, is just really important. You know, I don't think you can do that enough. And I, I, you know, just creating policy, having policies. I mean, there's some examples of policies that we have that we can work with small businesses on. Like how do you promote wellness? Because a lot of times, you know, it, depending on what how old folks are and what their history is, you can really you can promote a, a culture of wellness in your in your organization that really supports people's recovery. I just think that's really. I don't want to keep saying that, but that to me is is really just essential. You know, having you know leave policies and EAP and if you can, and um, having employee assistance programs and you know not using language that is stigmatizing or discriminatory. And I think sometimes. There's such a connection. We kind of started this conversation off between criminal justice and addiction, right? So a lot of folks, you know, 70% of the people who are incarcerated have a substance use disorder by their own admission. So if you're hiring someone who's coming out of prison or jail and you're not addressing it, chances are that person has struggled in the past. And don't you want to have uh, a way to support them? I think it's just, I think it's really important to, for them to know, hey, you can get better. We believe in you. And that's, sometimes that's the best thing you can say to folks. When I hire folks here... They're just a lot of times because they feel so bad about the road they've been down. And this is our direct care staff as well as some of our managers. And we say, hey, we, I believe in you. I, you know, we're going to promote you to HR manager. And, you know, I've got a 30-year-old young woman who formerly struggled with heroin addiction. She's my HR manager. She's open about it. She's amazing. She's so brilliant. But we, you get so knocked down in your addiction sometimes you don't think you can ever do you know, ever climb out of it. But when you have a boss or a supervisor who believes in you and starts giving you more and more responsibilities and you start earning more and more responsibilities, it just has a, an effect that's going to impact communities everywhere. Friends, you're listening to the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. Uh, Neil, I've got one more question for you, and then I'll turn over to Taylor for the, uh, the rapid fire uh, segment of our program I think it was back maybe more than 10 years ago, you co-founded 
the CARES Academy. It's this uh, amazing uh, training program. Share with our listeners a little bit about how that got started and, and how it operates today. Yeah, thank you for mentioning it. It's something I'm really proud of. Um, CARES stands for Certified Addiction Recovery Empowerment Specialist. And it's a training program for people with the lived recovery experience to help other people get recovery. So on the mental health side of behavioral health, you have mental health peer specialists that have been around for 30 years, not so much on the addiction side. And so we are the first uh, organization in Georgia to develop this academy. And we did it by, we did an environmental scan. We looked all over the country who was doing some of the best work. And we took some of, from the mental health side because they're doing really great work here in Georgia. And we uh, got, got, did a bunch of focus groups in, in, uh, in treatment programs and in drug courts and in prisons and in uh, alumni groups all around the state. And we developed this curriculum. And the state, I, I had kind of stalked the state for, for a couple of years and say, hey, I really want to do this. Would you fund it? And finally, after two years, they did. And as sort of a pilot project, and it was so successful, we had 55 people apply for the first academy of 10. Then we upped it to 16. And to date, 10 years later, we have 742, actually there's 20 more, so we 762 uh, individuals who we've trained to be certified peer specialists for addiction here in Georgia. And we really, I think we have the best training in the country. Um, it's a week-long academy. But again, we believe in that connection. We live our values. And so we stay connected with these folks. And over half of them are still certified, even after 10 years, which is a great rate. But most of them are still engaged with us. We do monthly webinars with them and for them. And we get together three times a year in what we call our CARES Connect. And that's a time when you can uh, shore up your skills. We usually are, are helping them with their, with their uh, either group skills or individual check-in skills or advocacy skills. So it's a training program that um, is just taken off. And I just see great things happening. And right now you're seeing, you know, every week I see more and more studies coming out that peer support really works. It really helps. Like having a coach check in with you, having someone who just doesn't want to tell you what to do, but will be there and walk alongside you is really important. And that's what these cares do. So we have, like I said, 750 now in Georgia and that's how we know things are changing, you know, that culture. It's not just, we're, we're not experts in anyone's recovery. We're just experts in our own recovery, and we can walk alongside people to help them as well. That's amazing. I mean, that's a sizable army that you have put together <laughs> over time of people doing an, uh, amazing things around the state of Georgia. So, Neil, we're now going to go to our rapid fire uh, section of the podcast. I have to warn you. Uh, Taylor is going to try his hardest to stump you with his questions. I'm betting on you. I'm, I'm betting oh, on you. No, don't do so, that. So, uh, Taylor, go ahead. Okay. First, what is your favorite or most rewarding part of your job? Oh, just being around hope. Just being around the hope. Like watching people just get get it. You know, watching teaching a class and watching them. Oh, that's what that's about. I get it now. I can recover. You know, get seeing the light turn on in people's eyes and how they can walk with someone and help someone is just, it's my favorite part of the job. Awesome. Secondly, what is a favorite book, either fiction or nonfiction? Oh gosh. Um, I'm reading Hillary Mantle right now. I guess one of my favorite books is called a good scent from a strange mountain. And it's by 
Robert Olin Butler, and it's it's a series of short stories about uh, the Vietnamese culture. It's it's I know that's a strange. It, it was written in the '90s, and it's just still still one of my one of. Um, I forget which award, won a bunch of awards the year it came out. So it's called A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain. Excellent. Outside of work, what are some favorite activities that you use to relax, unwind, step away? When, when you're an executive director, there is no outside of work. It's <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I'm a, I like to cycle. I used to be a, 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 a cyclist. Um, I used to say a biker, but then people think a motorcycle. I'm, <laughs> street, but I'm, a, I'm a cyclist, and I don't get outside much because of the time. Honestly, since the last 12 years, I have not been out that much riding as, as much as I'd like to. So I do a lot of spin classes. And I just, in the pandemic, because my gym closed, I bought an erg rower, so I oh, am now okay. doing concept two rowing. And man, when you combination of rowing and cycling is really something. I mean, I'm I'm sixty and I feel like I'm fifty eight. <laughs> I'm worn out just thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious. You you went to school at Bowling Green, and then I think FSU, if I have that correct, and then you mentioned that you did some work in Key West, and now you're in Atlanta. So I'm, I'm curious, where do you call home? Uh, Atlanta. I've been here 22 years okay. now, so I feel like Atlanta's my home. I feel like the South is my home. I was raised in Ohio. I left when I was uh, after Bowling Green when I was 22, and then lived in the South ever since. So I feel kind of... Even though Key West isn't really the South, although it's, more, <laughs> it's kind of know, a different it's, world. Uh, it's another, it's another planet. Um, you know, I lived in Tallahassee, Florida, for 15 years, which is how I got to FSU. Okay, very nice. Uh, and then finally, we'll, we'll get you out of here on this. I, I know I'm sure our listeners will be curious um, how they can support your organization or be a part of it. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what you tell people that want to give back or do more. Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, we are our, our website is gasubstanceabuse.org, or you can find us on Facebook under Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all of those things. We're actually having a fundraiser on Tuesday. It's the end of recovery month, and we're celebrating that. We're, uh, we're, we're trying to raise funds so we can do more advocacy down at the state capitol. Um, there's all kinds of ways to give. And, you know, if you want, if you were someone you know is struggling, um, you can call our peer support warm line. It's 844-326-5400. And that's from 830 in the morning until 11 at night. And we have a recovery coach, someone like me answering the phone just to say, hey, how can I support you today? Awesome. Thank you so much. And Neil, if, if one of our listeners would like to contact you individually, what's the easiest way to do that? Yeah, email at neil, N-E-I-L, at gasubstanceabuse.org. It's the easiest way. Great. Well, Neil Campbell, thank you so much for being with us today. You've, you've given us and our listeners a, a lot to think about, a lot to consider in this whole area of, of substance abuse. And, and thank you for what you do. We really appreciate thank you. it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Taylor. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Taylor, that was very, very interesting. I've got a whole page of, of, of notes that I took uh, during our interview with, with Neil, but I'm still I'm stuck on that quote that the opposite of addiction is human connection. And, and what we can do, not only as, as leaders in small business, but just as human beings to try to build up human, human connection with our friends, with our colleagues, with our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the whole, the whole, 
concept and, and theme of a human element and just unraveling the stigma that's around substance abuse and, and really what, what Neil said at the very beginning, creating a, a culture of acceptance and just treating each other like humans is so important. So uh, Taylor, as we wrap up, uh, a number of things going on here with Small Business Matters. Uh, we just uh, finished up our last Small Business Matters lunch. Last week, we had a great guest, Cindy Filer, with Innovative Outsourcing. Our newsletter will be going out here shortly for, for this month. We're, uh, we've announced we've opened up registration for the Small Business Matters Boot Camp, kicking off in January. Looking forward to that. Our conference is scheduled for, I think it's May 21st in 2021. We're very excited about that. And as you know, I have a book that uh, we've just finished the final edit on, which is very exciting to me, and it's at the publisher as we speak. So I'm looking forward to making that book available to our listeners. Anything else that I've left out? No, I think you've covered it. Well, I want to remind our listeners to rate, review, and subscribe to the Small Business Matters podcast. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. It is the only podcast that truly matters to small business. May each of you continue to pursue all that matters.